Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. So this is a 70-year-old woman. She has a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia. And she recently presented at ER with dizziness and left ptosis. She had a CT negative uh, for any acute bleeding, and thrombolytics were not administered because of mild symptoms. She had an MRI consistent with small subacute infarcts involving the cerebellum. She had a workup, which our neurology colleagues uh, do, uh, which included a CTA head and neck, transthoracic, transesophageal echocardiogram, which didn't show evidence of a PFO, and she underwent 30-day ambulatory rhythm monitoring, which were unrevealing. So she was referred to our EP clinic for implantable loop recorder. However, the patient was digitally savvy and bought a smartwatch, and she had recordings that she brought to clinic with her showing evidence of atrial fibrillation. Um, so multiple uh, events of atrial fibrillation. And if you look at the closer recording analysis, um, you have what's classic, the hallmark of atrial fibrillation, irregularly irregular rhythm without clear P waves. So um, the patient smartwatch with the electrophysiology review in clinic confirmed atrial fibrillation. Given her CHADS VASC score of five, she was started on anticoagulation and initially she was referred for loop recorder implantation. We did not need to implant a loop recorder and started her on anticoagulation. So I'm going to be discussing PFO and ASD management in patients with strokes, specifically patients that have embolic stroke of undetermined source. Um, and by the time the patients actually come to me, they already had a very thorough evaluation by my colleagues as clearly demonstrated by this tall round. So they've had both imaging studies and a comprehensive neurological and vascular and cardiac evaluation, including an EP evaluation, to distinguish the type of stroke they had. I do want to emphasize that a cardiac source should always be considered specifically in the younger patients. Um, and it is a multidisciplinary approach, as Dr. Taraji uh, demonstrates. Now, stroke doesn't spare anyone. It occurs in both the young and the old, even the pediatric population. This first graph here demonstrates that you do have, obviously, an increased incidence of stroke as you get older. But if you look at the bar graph, the red is the stroke of undetermined source, and the green is cardioembolic stroke. And it is a big chunk of the etiology of strokes in the younger population. So this has already been uh, presented by my colleagues. You have the definite cardiac source, but part of the definite cardiac source other than AFib and rheumatic valve disease and endocarditis is congenital heart disease, including an atrial septal defect. And part of the possible cardiac source, which falls sometimes under the embolic stroke of undetermined source, is an atrial septal aneurysm as well as a patent frame in ovale. Um, so Paradoxical embolism has a lot to do with these two uh, pathologies. Uh, a paradoxical embolism is essentially something on the right side of the heart, whether a venous uh, thrombosis, a PE, right heart endocarditis, right heart valve disease, or unknown source, clearly, that then crosses over through some kind of shunt and then causes an embolism, including a stroke. This can be intracardiac, such as PFO or ASD, but it can also be at the pulmonary level, so an arteriovenous malformation, usually large enough to allow this kind of embolism. This here demonstrates ice images, actually, of a patient with clot literally in the pulmonary artery on this uh, uh, screen here, and then on this one, a clot in the SVC. This is from the same patient, and the patient had a uh, large PFL. So part of the cardiac evaluation for shunt 
first off, and this is for you, Dr. Taraji, is absolutely rule out AFib because it's still one of the main sources for that. Um, and a minimum of 30 days, and we usually do advocate for longer-term monitoring. Um, but you do do transcranial Doppler with bubbles, which are very sensitive for any kind of uh, shunting, but it picks up both intracardiac and intrapulmonary. Then transthoracic echo, obviously, with bubble studies is the preferred initial test. It's the least invasive. The TEE, or transesophageal echo, has greater sensitivity and specificity, and it gives me really good anatomy of what I'm dealing with. Is it an ASD? What kind of ASD? And the anatomy of a PFO, and is it high risk or not? Um, intracardiac echo is excellent, but it's obviously usually procedural. This requires a venous access. Um, and this here is an image of a TE image of a PFO. Now, an ASD is not a PFO. They cannot be used interchangeably, the terms. An ASD is an actual defect. It's a congenital heart defect, and it can be a secundum ASD, which is a defect in the septum premium, a premium ASD, an unroofed coronary sinus right here, or a superior or inferior sinus venosus defects. All of these can cause um, emboli or stroke. Um, a lot of these patients are going to be asymptomatic until adulthood. Symptoms can be quite vague. Um, they do have risk of atrial arrhythmias. It's increased, especially as they get older. And there is a risk of paradoxical emboli, including stroke. You do close these if they have symptoms, if they have right heart enlargement or significant shunt. Obviously not if they have Eisenmenger physiology. But one of the indications for closure of ASD is paradoxical emboli, including stroke. Now, atrial septal aneurysm is kind of a high-risk feature in a PFO, but on its own, um, it's also been associated with um, stroke. And the definition is essentially a redundant or mobile interatrial septal tissue with excursion of more than 10 to 15 millimeters during your respiratory cycle. Um, and the pathology thought behind that is you can have these little fibrin platelet particles on the left side of the atrial septal aneurysm, and with this extreme motion, it can actually be dislodged and cause uh, some kind of uh, stroke. Um, it is, again, an increased prevalence, but not necessarily for sure a causation. It is an association. Now, a patent foramen ovale, as Dr. Rustman showed, is not necessarily a pathology because it is present in anywhere between 20 to 34% of adults who are actually all born with a PFO. And this shows the anatomy here. A PFO is essentially this tunnel connection um, between the septum premium and the septum secundum that we all have at birth. And as you're born, the left atrial pressure exceeds that of the right atrium, and this is sealed closed in 75% of us. And then in the 25% of us, it is not. Um, and it does not cause pathology or any kind of uh, uh, problems in the majority of patients that have PFOs. Um, in a small population, though, it can cause stroke. So there is an increased prevalence of PFO and embolic stroke of undetermined source, especially when compared with those that have known causes, both in the young and in the old. Um, what are high-risk PFO features? We've already mentioned the atrial septal aneurysm. This uh, ice image clearly demonstrates a large shunt if you look at the amount of bubbles that actually cross into the left atrium through the PFO. Um, flap mobility, a prominent eustachian valve or carry network, as well um, as kind of that large separation between the premium and secundum uh, septum. There's been six major randomized clinical trials looking at um, whether we should be closing PFO in patients that have a stroke of undetermined source. 
And I will, I'm not going to go into details of this big slide, but essentially, if you do a meta-analysis of all these randomized clinical trials, there is a reduced risk of recurrent stroke from 5.1% with medical therapy alone to 1.8% with PFO closure, specifically in the embolic stroke of undetermined source. But you derive the most benefit when you really pick your patients, when you do that thorough evaluation that we do here at the Cleveland Clinic. And part of that process is going through what's called the ROPE and the PASCAL score. So what is the ROPE score? Essentially, you're looking at patients that do you have already risk factors of good old plaque strokes, such as hypertension, diabetes, stroke, uh, prior stroke, or TIA, or are you a smoker? Um, do you truly have a, um, a stroke on imaging, and are you younger or not? And if you kind of accumulate a stroke that is greater than or equal to seven, then you do derive a great benefit from PFO closure. In addition to that, if you take the ROPE score and add the PASCAL score, which looks at high-risk PFO features, then you really narrow it down to the patients that will benefit the most. And the PASCAL uh, score then will put you into an unlikely PFO-related stro stroke, a possible or a probable. And there is a clear benefit in PFO closure for those that fall under the possible and probable. Um, and this is from a paper recently pub published in JAMA. Um, this is actually our own data from the Cleveland Clinic. It's an abstract that was accepted at the ACC upcoming um, uh, conference, uh, where we looked at our own data at 280 patients that had PFO closure, uh, specifically also looking at the type of device that we that was used. And we did find that there was a little bit more residual shunting noted in the amplaster devices, a little bit more AFib noted in the cardioform devices, but there was still no major outcome uh, um, on stroke. Now, with the embolic stroke and undetermined source and PFO, I've already covered that one, PFO is common. Two, you do need a thorough evaluation before you consider closing a PFO. Three, in the young patients less than 60 years with a PFO and an embolic appearing infarct and no other mechanism of stroke identified, you should consider PFO closure. And then those that opt to receive medical therapy, then again, there's still ongoing studies, but uh, you can do antiplatelet and you leave it up to the clinician if they feel that they need anticoagulation as well. But I do want to mention that there is an increased absolute rate of non-periprocedural atrial fibrillation in the patients that receive a PFO closure device. Probably has something to do with the metal that is implanted in the heart. There is this increased risk in the first 30 to 45 days that usually then goes away. It's fairly transient without any long-term persistence or recurrence. But there isn't sufficient evidence because we don't track these patients or monitor them long term. And that's what we are trying to do here. The clinic is monitor long term of these patients. So what are PFO closure devices? There's two main that are the approved, the Gore Cardioform and the Abbott and Platzer. Um, uh, the PFO closure is a fairly lower risk procedure. However, there's nothing that's risk-free. You can have intraprocedural risk, including vascular, pulmonary vein injury, and stroke itself. Obviously, that's why we have recognized the patients. And then you can have post-procedural risks such as new onset AFib, which I mentioned, device embolization and erosion, which is extremely rare. Um, this is just an ice image of a PFO. This is balloon sizing to kind of decide on what size PFO device should you be using. You essentially uh, deploy the left-sided disc, then deploy the right-sided disc. You do want to make sure that you've captured all rims, superior, inferior, anterior, and posterior on ice imaging, and then you release the device. Um, ASD closure, again, very similar devices that have a thicker, wider waist because, again, it's a defect. There's actually a missing chunk of septum in ASDs. There's the Gore Cardioform and the Abbott and Platzer as well. You do want to balloon size these patients. Uh, it's actually even more important in ASDs than in PFOs. Um, and then this is an example of an Amplaster device in an ASD patient and a Cardioform device in an ASD patient. 
Um, I think it would be great to actually start uh, looking into biodegradable devices. There's a lot of clinical trials ongoing that might actually mitigate that risk of potential AFib and definitely the risk of erosion if you have something that doesn't persist in the heart. There's no metal in the heart uh, over time. And just in conclusion for the key points for this, an ASD is not a PFO. Having a PFO is common. In embolic stroke of undetermined source, you do want a thorough evaluation to rule out any alternative mechanism of stroke before considering PFO closure. But in the select population, the younger patients that have a PFO and an embolic appearing stroke or uh, undetermined source, and you have no other mechanism, you should consider PFO closure. Um, and clearly, this is a multidisciplinary approach that takes on vascular neurology, cardiology, and medicine. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org slash tallrounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.